0: All right, everyone, good morning. I uh, had an interesting encounter with Pastor Tyler earlier this week. He said, uh, hey, Jason, you know what what day you're preaching? I said, yes, Sunday. I got that this time. Um, He said, no, it's actually National Left-Handed Day. And I thought, it's finally my day. I'm getting it, awesome. uh, It was a requirement for my wife and I, we didn't know this, that we would both marry lefties. So that's what you get for me and my wife. So if you are left-handed, if you're the one in nine, I extend to you a left-handed high five and to everyone else, sup. We're gonna have a good time today. Uh, We've been in the book of Genesis for the last few months and it's just been a blast just seeing this story unfold. And as we're in uh, chapter 28 and 29 today, we are going to see one of the strangest stories that God will use to grow his family. And it's one of these stories where it's very easy to draw some false conclusions out of. And uh, one of the things I really like about the Bible though is it never really edits itself to make the people that are in it, who are supposed to be pointing towards Jesus, um, it, it never really makes them look all that great. They're just more concerned with telling the story. And it's almost like modern readers can look at these people and go, wow, God used that person. I am not nearly as weird and messed up as that person in this story. And to you, I would say, absolutely. I I do agree with that. But God still used that person, which means, guess what? He can use you as well. No matter how weird your story is, no matter how messed up it is, you can—he can redeem your story and then put you into his mission. Um, and as we go through the story, where we are, we came out the last couple of weeks. Um, we we are now in the third generation of God's story, and we have these two brothers now. They're twins. One is named Jacob. He's the younger brother, and one is named Esau. He is the older brother. And typically what would happen in that culture is the older brother would be the one that holds the birthright. If, if you are ever a Downton Abbey fan, like my family is, they, they'd say that's the male heir, right? The one that everything is going to go through. The nine o'clock, by the way, when I said male heir in Downton Abbey, they looked at me like I had something growing out of my ears. So I'm glad seeing some people are like, all right, cool. PBS, here we go. Um, so, Something weird happens when their mom, Rebecca, is pregnant with these two twins. God comes to her and says, what is normal for most families will not be normal for you. In your family, the older, who would typically be the one that leads, he's actually going to be serving the younger. The younger one is gonna be the one that leads your family. So, how is this going to happen? How are we gonna break through this cultural norm that, they would, that everyone would know um, belongs to Esau? Well, a couple of weeks ago, we actually saw how that happened, right? Uh, Esau is hungry, he is a hunter. He comes uh, home after a long day of uh, being out in the forest and getting game and all this really great stuff for his family to eat, and he is starving. And what does his younger brother do? Oh, you know that birthright that legally belongs to you? Would you sell that to me? And I've got some stew here, I've got some bread here, and it can be all yours just for the small price of one birthright. And Esau goes, all right, fine, let's go ahead and do this. So that's how Jacob actually gets the birthright, but there's one thing that he still needs. And this is what uh, we uh, found out last week. He still needs the blessing from his father. So what does he do? He puts on a bunch of different uh, skins and furs and different clothes. He smells different. He feels different. He goes in and he deceives his almost blind father, Isaac, and says, I am Esau, give me the birthright. And at the end of the story, he ends up having both the birthright and the blessing, showing that he is the one. And yes, he obtained them through really, really messed up ways, but he still has it. And at the end of that last chapter, Esau is absolutely furious at his brother. So that's where we're actually picking things up today in chapter 28. Um, We have Isaac throughout this whole entire thing. He calls back his son, Jacob, after he has given them birthright, thinking that he is Esau. And he says, you know what? Here's the deal. It's probably a good idea for you at this point to get out of town for a little bit. There's a couple different reasons for this. The first one being um, your brother, he's looking for you. Or maybe we should put it this way. Your brother, the hunter who kills things for a living is looking for you. And he doesn't want to sit down for a nice little chat over coffee. All right. He is furious with you. And I don't know what he's capable of. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. And the second thing he tells him is actually even more significant. He says, so now that you have the birthright, you have the responsibility on the family of continuing on our family line. And there's a problem here. You, Jacob, you are 77 years old. You've got no wife and you have no kids. I need to send you away right now. So what you're going to do is you're going to make the same trip. My servants sent when I went up to get my wife, Rebecca, you're going to go about 500 miles north to the land of your uncle. And you're going to find a wife there. This will offer you protection. And this will probably be a good place for you to find your wife. And throughout all this, Jacob ends up going on his journey. But I wanna just go back to Esau for just a little bit because this story already to readers back then is strange. It it wouldn't make a lot of sense to have the older serving the younger. Um, So what's happening here? Well, remember, part of the responsibility of this family is to make the glory of of the Lord known to everyone on earth. So what's Esau doing in this moment? He does not seem like he's that great of a guy at this point. We already know that he's taken two foreign wives. That's not really a problem for us today, but you have to remember back then, foreign wives are serving foreign gods, and that's not okay with God. Uh, The second thing that we find with him is he, he wants to murder his brother. That's not always the greatest way to start something, but think about the way that he thinks about his family here. Um, what does he do to that birthright? He sells it for a very simple meal, right? Lentils, stew, and bread. Um, if you want to despise someone, take something valuable and, and pay it for a small, uh, get a small price for it. Um, like, like the way I was thinking about this this week is that, um, my dad has a Willie Mays autographed Jersey that someday he said, it's going to come to me when, when he passes away. And, um, It's not that I'm hoping something will happen to him. It's just that I really want that Jersey. So I've already got a spot in the dent. It's going to be just wait. Um, but anyways, um, now if I get that Jersey from him after he passes away and I just end up just wearing it around and, and wiping my mouth on it and, you know, working out, what does that say about what I think about the gift my father has given me? It probably not a whole lot, right? Probably not a whole lot about my relationship with with him I, I think that Esau in some ways is is just openly despising his dad, and if this is the guy that's supposed to be uh, taking the fame of God throughout all the, all the world. He, he's acting like an absolute pagan. So it almost seems like God knows what he's doing by having him go through Jacob because Jacob will go well off the path that God wants him to be on. But the thing about Jacob is God keeps on bringing him back over to the path. And that's the human experience for all of us is that if you belong to God, he will not let you stay comfortable within your sin. He's going to catch up with you. And as Jacob begins this 500 uh, mile journey to visit his uncle and to find a wife, at the end of chapter 28, he lays his head down after a long day of traveling. He lays it down on a rock and he goes to sleep and he has this incredible vision. He sees these angels ascending and descending a ladder. And it's probably a pretty famous term right now, Jacob's ladder. And I'm just gonna start right here in Genesis 28 verses 13. And here, uh, excuse me, and there above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the east and to the west, to the north and to the south. All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. We see in this ladder, there's a connection that's present between God and man. It's almost like God is surrounding Jacob with his angels in this moment. It's showing that the God of the universe desires an intimate relationship with Jacob. And he's saying, you are gonna have my blessing, my protection and my presence. And this is the very first time in the Bible that we get this idea that God is present with someone wherever they go. Because if you look at ancient cultures and what happened back then, is when you left the land of your gods, the God was left behind. So, If you left the land, God's just still right there, but God is saying, no, 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 I am so much bigger than any geographical region. I am, I'm, I'm infinity. I I am everywhere. I'm omnipresent. You cannot escape me and I am going to go with you on this journey. And this is what he says to every single one of us as we go through the journey of our life. And this is our first point today. We're just going to be looking at three simple points of what God gives throughout these, these next two chapters. The first one is this, God gives his followers his presence. He gives them his presence. One thing we're going to find about his presence is it's it's a great thing to understand that God comes with you in all things, but this is where it becomes so important to know the power and the might and the sovereignty of God. At the very end of uh, Moses's life, at the very end of Deuteronomy, he's giving the covenant to the nation. He gives them the curses and he gives them the blessings for what will happen if they follow God's law or if they choose to disobey God's law. And at the very end, one of the things he says is this in Deuteronomy 31:6 be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them for the Lord your God goes with you and he will never leave you or forsake you. It doesn't matter where you are. Our God is always there with you. This is something I have to even tell my son. He just turned six years old. Every once in a while um, he'll just have a bad dream or something like that. And he'll wake up. And I, this happened just a couple weeks ago. And I, I asked him, buddy, what, what's going on? What are you thinking? What are you, what are you feeling? And he just told me, he's like, dad, I was so afraid that you and mom had just left and that we were, that we were just gone out of the house. And he was there by himself. I told him, I said, well, you know that that's never going to happen. We would never leave you. But even if there was some weird circumstance that took us out of the house, who is always here with you? And he just did that great little Sunday school answer. That is just so beautiful coming from a six year old Jesus. Absolutely. You know, Jesus is never going to leave you. You know, Jesus is never going to forsake you, but it's not just that his presence is with you. It's his power and his sovereignty is with you as well. See, the way I like to put this is having a God that comes with us is a great thing, right? But if it's a weak God, then who cares? This is why we need to have our theology about God with us at all times. If we have a God that is just, think of it like a bodyguard that's 120 pounds. It's cute, but it's not functional if, if a God's coming with us, but he has no power. But if we have a God that's able to take all circumstances in our life and use them to his glory and for our good, that is so much better because knowing that God will not waste the suffering in your life because he is going to use different, difficult things like he does in Jacob's life in this story to have all things come together under his will. And at the end of this vision, he gets gets up and he praises God and he names this place uh, Bethel and that which literally just means the house of God, knowing that he's going to come back to it someday. So that's chapter 28, and we're gonna be spending most of our time in chapter 29 today. So as he's just had this dream, he finishes up his uh, 500 mile journey. He gets north to uh, Padan Aram, and he knows his uncle is going to be somewhere around the town. So back then what you would do is you'd probably go and you'd hang out around the well. You would know that everyone would need to come and draw some water or or bring your flocks or whatever it ended up being. And it was kind of the place where all like the town gossip happened. And you could get like the the information on where people were. So as he's just kind of hanging out there, he's like, hey, do you guys wouldn't happen to know a guy named Laban would you? And everyone's like, oh yeah, Laban, he's a great guy. No problem. He'll probably be around here soon enough. When out of nowhere, he sees this woman approaching from a distance and she is a stone cold fox and lightning hits him and he becomes the smitten kitten of the story. He is completely in love. It is like Ariel. The first time she sees Eric, she is fully in love, right? And it's a little ridiculous though, isn't it? He's 77 years old. Why are you falling in love with someone at very first sight? You might even wanna say it's lust at first sight. I don't know. Um, take that for what it's worth. But she has come to the well to water her flocks. And it just so happens that this woman is the person that he has been looking for. She is the, uh, she is the daughter of the uncle Laban. So this is where we pick up our story in verse nine. While he was still talking to him, to them, these are the other shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and he rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and he watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and she told her father. So what we have here is back then it was very normal to keep marriage within the, uh, the family. So, so marrying a cousin was not a weird thing back then. Um, he kisses her, he, he weeps. And I think really all this comes down to, he'd been on a 500 mile journey, probably most of it on foot. He's probably just happy, it's done, God has shown him. This is the family I'm supposed to be at. There, there's almost this cry of relief. And he gives her a kiss because it's his, it, it's his family, it's, it's his cousin. And now there's only one thing to do, right? He's got to go back and he's got to meet his uncle, his uncle Laban. In Laban, what we are going to see is someone who is a perfect match for Jacob. He's just as sneaky. He's just as conniving. And he's just, at times he's just this master manipulator. He's playing like this evil, like puppet master, getting all these little different pieces on a chessboard to try to accomplish his will. And Jacob is gonna get caught up in his net in this story. He is a controlling guy. He knows exactly what he wants. He wants free labor and he wants to marry off his daughters. And ultimately what I'm seeing with guys like Laban, the guy has just a massive identity issue. But here's the good news. For all of us that have massive identity issues, we have a God out there that is willing to grant us a newer and bigger and better identity than anything the world can give us. That's the second point we have today. God gives his children a new identity. Um, I think most of you will probably agree with me when I tell you it is a difficult time to be a parent, right? I I, I talked about this with my mom recently, just that um, you know, when I was growing up, there just wasn't a whole lot about culture that necessarily changed. There was technology that changed, but everyone's attitude was pretty much kind of the same. But it seems like now, I mean, there's things we have to speak into and grow into that we've just never even had to think about before. And one of the things that I just get from dads constantly as I'm hanging out with young dads, it's just like, how do we even speak into these things? Um, How do we, we haven't even formed an opinion ourselves on some of these just major cultural issues. And I think, because we get confused and because this stuff is hard, I think almost everyone here will probably recognize um, there is at least a temptation to be kind of like Laban, right? We, We all have an end goal for our kids. We want them to be good. We want them to be successful. And sometimes there's a temptation just to put them on that pathway, right? And that pathway is whatever it ends up being, if they deviate from it, we are going to bring them right back in by using any means necessary. And the problem is that's not always God's way. And one of the things I like to ask dads specifically, just because those are the guys that get to hang out with the most, what does grace look like when your child goes off the path that you have chosen for them? Like, like do you still love your child? Do, do you still um, want the best for them, even if they go off and do something completely differently? Or is it some type of idolatry that you have within, within this, I don't know, identity that you're, that you're making for yourself if you have to ma- manipulate and control. Um, this is a conversation I feel like happens uh, more and more in my house as my, as my daughters are getting older. I've got a, uh, almost a sophomore and a eighth grader. And as we talk about identity a lot, like just these issues come up pretty much all the time. Um, because really what we see is that any identity outside of your relationship with God is eventually going to let you down. The reason being is that identity, like the relationships, whatever it ends up being, let's just say you're, you find identity in being a worker. You like getting up every single day. You like going to work. You, you have pride in uh, telling people, this is what I do for a living, right? But here's the problem. Um, one day, you are not gonna be working for that business. You, you may not own that business anymore, whatever it ends up being. And, and maybe you'll just be, hey, it was just time to retire. You're just came time for me to not be a worker anymore. Or maybe it's something like, well, there's a new industry that came in, AI came in and it's just not a relevant industry anymore. I'm not a worker anymore. So what do you do on that day? If all your identity is put on that job? Well, it's going to destroy you, right? So we can do that with work, but I think we even have more of a tendency to do that with relationships. Um, my wife, um, I I told my daughters this recently, my wife cannot bear being a small G an idol God um, in in my relationship. She just can't bear that weight. She wasn't meant to. Just like I'm not meant to bear the weight of being her God. So if, if I put my identity and put all my hope in my relationship with my wife, that's not a great thing. Now is there hope that I should put in our relationship? You bet. But everything that I have behind that, absolutely not. And I told my daughters that there will be a day when the vows that we made 18 years ago, they've they've been fulfilled till death parts us. Death will part us someday. And at that day, one of us will not have a spouse. So if we've been putting our identity on that relationship, it will eventually fail us. But God does not work that way because he is eternal. So with Laban getting back to the story, we see from the very beginning, As he's meeting Jacob, his only intention is to manipulate and deceive Jacob for his own purposes. And be honest, maybe it's because he has some cultural identity going on. Biblically, we genuinely don't know. But what we do see is that his sin, it does not happen in a vacuum. And what we see is there is a trail of destruction behind him. And I would say, parents, we have an incredible ability to either leave a trail of destruction behind us with our kids, to give them their own false identities, but we also have an incredible ability to bless them, to show them grace, to show them love, to repent to them when we mess up. It's a very normal thing that we see um, throughout scripture with a very normal thing I've seen throughout culture. I'm so excited about the state of parents today. So getting back to the story, after Jacob stayed a whole month, this is uh, chapter 29, verse 14. After Jacob stayed with him, Laban, a whole month, Laban said to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Rachel had, or excuse me, Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, "'I'll work for you for seven years "'in return for your younger daughter, Rachel.'" So what happens here, remember he meets her out at the well, follows him home, meets uncle Laban, and after a month, so what do we do? You've been working for me for a while. How, how, how would you like me to pay you? And this is where we see the idolatry in Jacob's life. It's, I want Rachel. She is the God in my life. I'm putting all my chips in her corner. But the problem is she has an older sister, doesn't she? And it's strange how the Bible describes her, saying that she has weak eyes. That could mean a lot of different things. Um, I've, I've heard it said she might've have, might have even been cross-eyed or had a, had a strange color or some kind of discharge coming out of her eyes. I think what it really meant, because um, right after that, um, the Bible goes out of this way to say how beautiful Rachel was. I just think she wasn't as attractive as her sister. Um, I think Tim Keller called her homely, maybe, something like that. Um, so within that, there's going to be a little bit of tension, a little bit of a struggle coming on as the story keeps on going on. So he says, I want your younger daughter. So as that happens, Laban says this, and he gives the oddest response to someone declaring a love for his daughter, saying, I wanna marry this person. Verse 19, Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. It's a strange response because it's kind of a non-answer, right? Um, That's not what you want when you're asking for someone's hand in marriage. And it actually reminded me of when I asked my father-in-law for my wife's hand in marriage. Um, I was going down to go visit her. This is like 19 years ago. And I was going down 101 in California near Carpinteria, And, I knew I had to make that call soon because I knew when I saw Carrie at at the end of the trip, she was gonna ask me, have you called my dad yet? And I wanted to say yes, but I didn't wanna make the call. So my heart rate is jacked. I mean, I am just going absolutely nuts in this moment. And I am calling myself every horrible name in the book, trying to psych myself up and call who I'm hoping will be my future father-in-law. So finally get up, make the call. I think I may have even false started a couple times, got like six or seven numbers in, and then no, I can't do it, you know? So I finally get, get up there. I think my voice is cracking like that uh, teenage kid in uh, uh, the Simpsons, just, oh, hi, Steve, you know, just uh, doing like one of those weird things. Um, but uh, I, I finally get the words out and I'm telling him, look, I just, I want you to know, I love your daughter. I would really love to spend the rest of my life with her. Would that be okay with you? And there's a little bit of a pause. And then Steve just says something to me that I will never forget. Oh, um, I'm gonna have to call you back. (laughs) It was not what I was prepared to hear. And it was not something I wanted that, but the worst 20 minutes of my life. All I can say is my mother-in-law, she is a saint. Like um, she she talked to Steve afterwards. They told me what the conversation was like off the phone. Yeah, that was Jason. He just uh, called for Carrie's hand in marriage. And, well, just th- 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 hung up the phone. It was like it's totally natural for him. Just like, what is wrong with you? Call that boy back. Like so. Anyways, it's like it's like this like tainted stretch of highway for me now that I never want to drive through again. So, uh, but I do have my 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 good. Uh, now that I have grandkids, I can just tell him anytime he calls, I really love to come see the grandbabies. Oh yeah, sure, I'll call you back. You know, just you know. Um, <laughs> he's a good guy, um, but I will never stop making fun of him for this. So um, so he never actually says yes to Rachel. Uh, going back to Laban. He says, it's better that I give you to her than another man. And based off of that word, Jacob works for him for seven whole years, thinking that his bride will be there at the very end of it. And I mean, it must've just been a strange courtship. I mean, you're hanging out every day, having meals together every single day, hoping and dreaming of the day that they can finally be together as husband and wife. And the, the seven years, the Bible says, actually goes through very quickly in his mind. It just seems like a couple days went by because he was so in love with Rachel. And then he needs to remind his uncle that the seven years have gone by. And he does it in such a weird way that I'm going to read it because if I told you, I don't think you would actually believe uh, that this is the way he said the seven years were up. So this is verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to make love to her. When did this turn into a boys to men song? I do not know. This is crazy, Um, but (laughs) Laban says, okay. So Laban brought together all of the people of the place and gave a feast. But when the evening came, he took his daughter Leah and he brought her to Jacob and Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. Um, What the what? This is such a crazy story, right? But God is ultimately using this to accomplish his purposes. And can I just say something, just to take just a little bit of a rabbit trail? Um, obviously, uh, Jacob and Laban, as he's living with them, he has a completely chaste relationship with Rachel, right? He, he's not uh, living with her, he's not sleeping with her. It's just good to remind us every once in a while what God's design for sex is, is that ultimately, as I do more you know, premarital, and I, I do get a chance to do a lot of weddings, A lot of Christians are coming to me, not really knowing what God's design is. That marriage is really the only place that God designed sex to be at. It's not supposed to be in the engagement relationship. It's not supposed to be in dating. But most Christians are just not even aware of that. So that's one of the things that we actually see here, that when Jacob has relations with Leah in God's eyes, that is his wife now. And I just think about Leah within all this. Like how horrible must she feel in this moment? that she actually loves Jacob. She, she just pines for him, almost like he pines for Rachel. And yet she must have this idea that I am so unworthy of love that my dad actually has to deceive someone to get them to marry me. How, how terrible of a burden is that on her? You know, just to have that identity of probably feeling unloved all the time, but I would, Probably guess, probably venture that if I were just to get, get around, do a little poll to everybody and just get to know this, the, really the state of everyone's heart, that's probably a very common story for people within this room. I know there are people here that feel unloved for whatever reason. Maybe it was a family trauma in the past. Maybe it was abuse. Maybe someone walked out on you and you feel like this is who you are. You are someone who is unloved. The Bible actually says a lot to you. And I want to just read a couple verses telling you about what God actually thinks of you. The first one being in first John three, one, see how great a love the father has given us that we would be called his children. And in fact, we are, we are in fact called his children. Think about that. If you're a parent, is there anything you wouldn't do for your kids? I mean, I, I would die for my children like, easily. And yet within God's family, what did he do for us? Jesus went to the cross for all of us so that we could be his children. And that's what Romans 5, uh, 8 says as well. God demonstrated his own love for us in this is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you catch that? It's while you were still a sinner, not while you were having a really, really good day and you were worthy of it. While you were the most unworthy of it is when God called you and pulled you into his family. So for all of us, if you've ever felt feelings of being unloved, I wanna just challenge you today. Just let that wash over you. Know that there is a God out there that loves you. So continuing back in the story. Here's the thing, Hebrew stories, they are not worried about details, as far as why and motives and all that. They just are trying to tell a story. So we get to make a little bit of guessing, uh, a couple of guesses right here, don't we? Um, So for Jacob, we don't really know what was going on, how he was so easily deceived. Uh, maybe it was a little too much wine was uh, drunk by him that night. You know, there's no electricity in those tents, obviously. There's a custom that she would've worn a veil. So there, there were ways to deceive him, but we do know that he wakes up the next morning and it's not the person that he thought in bed with him. And he gets the fright of his life. Verse 25, when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban said, well, it's not our custom to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one, finish this daughter's bridal week, and we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. You, you can't got to see that there's like no irony here. When Jacob comes and he's like, why in the world have you deceived me? What kind of person would go and put on a disguise just so they can fool one of their rel- Oh my gosh. Right. He literally just did this. And he's like, why have you you done this? And here, I think we actually see Jacob's biggest issue exposed. Because when Laban says, serve me for another seven years and you can have the woman you want, what does he do? He jumps right on it, showing that Rachel is serving in that little G God part of his life. And I just need to point out right now, I, I don't like this story. Um, I don't like the deception that happened. I don't like all the weight that Jacob puts on his relationship. I don't like the idolatry. I don't like that he enters into a polygamous marriage uh, with both sisters. But just because I don't like it and you probably shouldn't either, it doesn't mean that we can't learn something uh, from it. Because what's God doing this whole time? He is fulfilling his promise to Jacob that he will be right there he, he is using all these different things to make the family line go on. And this is the last thing I just wanna share just as we get into this last point. God gives us comfort when life is hard, just through his presence. God gives us comfort when life is hard. One of the uh, verses that I just pull out, every time I talk about comfort, I always wanna go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It says this in verse three, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our trouble, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. You see, I think there's a little bit of a subtle heresy that we have in the American church that when God surrounds us, he wants our life to be easy. And it is just flat out false. Um, we say that because of the things that we experience in this country. If you were a believer in China, you shared that theology or North Korea or Pakistan, someplace where there's severe persecution, the idea that God is with us to make our lives easy, it just doesn't even compute. It, It would not make sense. But what God does promise is even though he doesn't promise a life of ease, he promises us that he will be there through the difficulties. And not only will he be there he will comfort us in those times. How does he do it? First off, he does it through his spirit. But the second way he does it, he does it through all of us. That's why it says at the very end of verse four, it's the comfort that we receive from God so it can just stay with us? No, so it can go out to other people who are hurting because that is the experience of life in a fallen world. And we have the ability to play into God's uh, story by comforting other people. This is why when I talk to people who are uh, going through you know, cancer journey, and they're celebrating, they understand that God is doing something in this moment. I've talked to people who have lost children before, and they can still praise God because they have an understanding that God was with them throughout all those difficult times. And in the story of Jacob, what we see is that someone else's deception, it created a tension in his life, didn't it? And in this uh, deception, what we end up seeing is that God will use this to accomplish his purpose, because why was he sent out by his father, Isaac, in the first place? He was sent out to make the family grow. And what happens in his relationship with Leah? It, it, it actually see that that's where the, the bloodline is gonna continue on. It's almost like God's just telling Jacob, you know what, you can't find your satisfaction in anyone else than me. Um, the great thing about the story is no matter who you identify with, whether you're Laban, you find yourself like, man, I got some issues with control in my life. I need to give that up to him. God is saying, yeah, and I still love you for it. In the middle of everything, just give it over to him. If you feel unloved by God, there's a place for you in this church and in this story as well, because this story, this church will constantly remind you of how loved you are by God. In the very end of the story, there is just something that is incredibly beautiful that happens even through all the pain that Leah and Jacob have gone through. She ends up being the one, not Rachel, that ends up seeing the bloodline continue on and we sang that, do so you remember we sang that song with all the different uh, names of God? There was one in there that was incredibly beautiful and it was Lion of Judah. The fourth boy that was born to Leah was named Judah. Guess where Jesus came from? He was the Lion of Judah. She would be the one to continue that bloodline down to bless the entire world through Jesus Christ is an incredible thing that even though she was in a loveless marriage, God showed her compassion and he showed her grace. And he's like, he's saying, I will bless you Leah, in spite of all the things that Jacob has done. As we end today, the call for all of us is to remember that God is always with us. He is ever present, he is ever in control. Whenever you feel unloved, whenever you feel like, I need to control every single thing that is in my path, you can't do it. And for some of you, it might just be a good time for us as we close our eyes today to just spend some time with God and repent. What I wanna just offer out to you guys, you know there's a next step table when we walk out of here every single week. That's not just for people who are starting their faith journey. That's for anyone down the line. If, if you don't believe in God at all and you wanna wrestle with someone, you go for it. If you're out there and you just go, man, I need to give something up, but I don't know how to do it, they are there for you. And after the service, we're just gonna have people that are gonna be down here just ready to pray with you, ready to walk alongside you and ready just to show you the love of God. Let's go ahead and pray. Our Lord and our God, I thank you so much for granting us your presence and it's not the presence of a weak and impotent God, it's a God of the universe who created, who is mighty, who is powerful, and who is sovereign over all the difficult situations of our lives. God, I pray for my friends that are out here today that are struggling with identity issues. It's a normal thing for us to go through. But God, you don't want us to just stay in our in our small idolatrous identities. You have granted us one that is so much bigger through your son, Jesus Christ. So first off, we thank you for that. We thank you for granting us uh, identity as your children. But God, I just pray for my friends out here. Let the spirit just move in them. Let them repent to you when they have just just realize that they have just gone away that they were not called to. And God, we just thank you for the grace you give us knowing that sometimes it takes a while for us just to come back to you because we can be hard-hearted. But God, as we go through trials that can be designed to bring us back, we thank you so much for the church that's there to comfort us in our time, in the time of need. Thank you God for loving us in your great name. We pray, Father. Amen.